0: All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace to us this day, for another day when uh, we can know you and serve you, and we are thankful for the salvation we enjoy through our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for our church, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and opportunity we have to meet together and to study God's Word and to reflect and think and seek to see how it can apply to us and we can uh, seek to be obedient in all the ways the Spirit works in our lives to impress upon us the truth of your Word. So help us tonight and give us uh, understanding and give us uh, a willing spirit as we look into the Scriptures. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. So uh, we are having our quiz again this week, and so let's start and and uh, see what we studied last week and see how you do here. First question: Paul's visit. Paul's. Paul's plan to visit the Corinthians twice was nullified by the painful visit. That's a tough one unless you can remember the context there. Paul's plan to visit the Corinthians twice was nullified by the painful visit. That's true. I'll kind of rehearse that again in a moment. But remember, one of the things Paul is... um, Paul is being criticized for is uh, changing his plans or telling the Corinth changing his travel plans and uh, we looked last week at how in first Corinthians when he's in Ephesus writing to them saying I'm going to come see you and here's what I'm going to do then we get to second Corinthians and he mentions he said he mentions a different plan he said I'm going to come see you twice I'm going to come see you, go to Macedonia and come back and then go to back, you know, but that doesn't work out either. And, uh, as we'll see what happened was Paul went to Corinth, uh, for a visit that we said is not in the book of Acts after writing first Corinthians. And he immediately comes back to Ephesus. It's some, uh, usually called the painful visit because it was painful for Paul and obviously some of the Corinthians, but, Paul faced a great deal of opposition there, or at least one opponent, maybe others, people who criticized him, objected to him, questioned his authority, and uh, Paul will have a lot of discussion about that. Number two, Paul's severe letter to the Corinthians was delivered by Titus, delivered by Titus. Again, we will go over that just in a moment here, but... Last time we talked about the fact that after that visit to Corinth, Paul comes back and he writes another letter. And this is not a letter in the scripture. This is a letter that uh, God chose not to put in the Bible. But it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. And Paul talks about it. And he says, I wrote to you this letter. And uh, it was delivered by Titus. Paul had first sent Timothy and then later Titus with this severe letter, and uh, this letter was pretty well received, as we said last time, by the Corinthians, and seemed to restore a harmony between Paul and the Corinthians for the most part. Three, the anointing by the Spirit takes place at the time of salvation. There's a lot of talk about anointing and preaching and charismatic, Pentecostal services, you know, got to get the anointing. Well, true. uh, That's a a misunderstanding of the phrase, the anointing. Uh, The anointing is just the spirit indwelling. Uh, That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. It's also mentioned in 1 John, that we all have the spirit. We have the anointing. We have the, the illumination of the spirit to enable us to understand God his truth, and so forth. Four, the indwelling Holy Spirit can be described figuratively as a seal. As a seal. And uh, that's also true. And we see the Holy Spirit, God seals us with the Spirit. The Spirit indwells us, and you can describe that figuratively with a metaphor as saying, he's like a seal, like a seal on a document that ancient documents were sealed with, guaranteeing ownership and security. So he's like a seal, guaranteeing uh, that we're owned by God and so forth. Also, viewed as a deposit, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of all future benefits of salvation. True again. So Paul calls the Holy Spirit, he uses the figure of a seal and also a deposit, Or in earnest, as the King James says, like an earnest money down payment. So we're given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we'll enjoy future benefits, ultimately, resurrection and glorification, and uh, in the kingdom and all that's coming in the eternal state. All right. I want to review uh, just a second here, what I just was talking about, just so you can see that on the chart again. Uh, There's a number of correspondences. Now, we don't get this first one in 2 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul refers to a letter he wrote from Ephesus. Now, remember what's happened here in Paul's life. Paul came to Corinth and established the church in Acts chapter 18. That was his second missionary journey, Acts 18. And he leaves uh, Corinth uh, with Priscilla and Aquila, who he met at Corinth. And he goes over to Ephesus briefly, leaves them off at Ephesus. He goes back to Jerusalem, then back to Antioch. And he starts on his third missionary journey, and he goes pretty much directly right to Ephesus and spends three years there. So pretty much everything that happens here is from Ephesus, except for 2 Corinthians. So Paul's in Ephesus for three years. This is Acts chapter 19. A lot happens there. But one of the things that happens is Paul writes a letter that is not mentioned, not in the Bible. Remember, Paul probably wrote a lot of letters in his lifetime. Only 13 are in the scriptures, but, you know, he didn't have any iPhone to call anybody or text message he had to write letters and probably wrote a bunch of them in his day. But God inspired and, and, and uh, certain ones to be in Scripture, what we needed in his revelation to us. So he mentions a previous letter, the first one he wrote, or at least one previous to 1 Corinthians. And then 1 Corinthians is written from Ephesus. And um, that's, of course, in our Bible, 1 Corinthians. And then, uh, what we're talking about right now, Paul makes a visit to Corinth, uh, that's not actually recorded in the book of Acts. The book of Acts says he's in Ephesus for three years. And then it talks about a visit. The next visit, uh, to Corinth is actually in the book of Acts, his second visit in Acts chapter 20. But in his letters, he talks about this visit that's coming up. That's, In Acts chapter 20, as a third visit. So, Paul actually made a visit, sometimes called the painful visit, we just talked about. He refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And he went there, and this was part of his strategy of two visits. He was going to go to, from Corinth, I mean, from Ephesus over to Corinth. He says, I'm going to visit you once, and then I'm going to go to Macedonia, to like Philippi, Thessalonica. And then I'm gonna come right back and visit you again, two visits, and then I'm gonna go on to Jerusalem. But that doesn't happen, because he makes the painful visit, he makes this visit over there, but it doesn't work out well. And that's where he meets this opposition, this person who objects to him, and uh, we'll talk about him in a moment. And so he leaves and goes right back to Ephesus, And when he gets back, he writes letter number three, commonly called the severe or the sorrowful sorrowful letter that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2 4, written from Ephesus. He writes that and he sends it by Titus to uh, Corinth. And Paul is waiting for the response, he's waiting for Titus to return. Apparently, they they have decided a strategy of where they will meet, but Paul, becoming impatient, or maybe because of what happened at Ephesus, there was a riot at Ephesus, Paul left. Paul goes on to Troas, goes north to Troas, waits for Titus there, doesn't find him, then goes on to Macedonia, and there he meets Titus. Gets a pretty good report, and he writes 2 Corinthians, the epistle that we're reading right now. So we've been looking at uh, Paul's defense, his defending his ministry against criticism. That's the first pretty much seven chapters, defending himself against the criticism that he is getting at Corinth. And uh, so Paul begins in chapter 112 through 213 at defending his conduct. Uh, how he had conducted himself with the Corinthians. But he begins, first of all, in one twelve through 2 4, we saw last time, by dealing with some of the Corinthians' complaints. Now, we're reading only one side of this. We don't have their letters, so we're trying to figure out exactly what they said. But it sounds like they said in verses 12 through 14, Paul responds to a complaint that apparently he writes sort of obscure letters Uh, and paul denies that he says i don't write anything you can't understand Uh, but they're sort of complaining about him this came up actually in first corinthians 5 9 there was a a misunderstanding or something they didn't understand paul i don't know how they misunderstood what he was saying but Either they misunderstood deliberately or accidentally, but here we have it again. And apparently they're arguing that, that we don't really get what Paul is saying in his letters. Um, He answers that uh, and says, that's not true. Then we get to the point about Paul changes his travel plans in 115 through 22. And that's where we went to those, those series of, uh, If you look at first corinthians and second corinthians there's about three different travel plans that are mentioned there but you know this is understandable paul says here's what i'm planning to do god willing (laughs) but god wasn't willing (laughs) paul had planned to do this but god intervened providence changed i mean circumstances changed he you know and so he can't be held to be uh you know uh a false, uh, a false teacher, or somehow, um, you know, trying to deceive them, and, and he argues that he says, listen, I'm not trying to deceive you, I'm not fickle or anything, you know, um, I've been very uh, adamant and straightforward with you, um, and uh, this is just the way it is. Sometimes circumstances change, and my plans had to change. And now we get to uh, where we left off last time. The third complaint is Paul has a domineering attitude. I'm trying to summarize here what they seem to be complaining about. This is uh, 123 through chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul says in verse 23, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now here we're talking about this painful visit that we're talking about. Paul had said, originally, I'm going to come to you at Corinth. I'm going to Macedonia and then I'll come right back to Corinth. And Paul says, listen, uh, I didn't make that second visit right away, like I said, because I wanted to spare you. Uh, I didn't want to. I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to uh, be very harsh with you. I wanted to spare you. Uh, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind I would not make another painful visit to you. So Paul makes that painful visit, it doesn't go well, he returns to Ephesus, he's doing this for their benefit. I say here in addition to the charge that Paul had arbitrarily altered his travel plans regarding Corinth, according to the mood of the moment as they seem to suggest, Paul was probably also accused of being a spiritual dictator who tried to dominate the Corinthians and their faith and then he did not hesitate to cause them pain. Paul, in effect, says, the reason I postponed my intended visit to Corinth was to spare you a second painful visit. So far from being unstable in his desires, Paul had the purpose, the, the, the settled purpose, of promoting their highest good, their highest joy, uh, you know, we work for your joy. We're not, we're, not, we're not doing this to hurt you. He promoted their joy, and, and, and he was trying to save them unnecessary pain and sorrow. I didn't want to cause you pain. That's the reason I didn't make that second visit that I had originally told you I was going to. Apparently, Paul is saying it was to spare the Corinthians and himself further pain, that he refrained from returning to Corinth from Ephesus after the so-called painful visit. And remember, this is this, uh, we just went over this, but remember, Paul goes over to Corinth and he intended to go to Philippi, go to Macedonia and come back. This is what he had communicated to them. Uh, But, as we just said, he goes over to Corinth and because it was such a painful visit, he just goes back to Ephesus to reflect, to determine what to do. So the words, you know, in chapter two, verse one, when he says, uh, I made up my mind, uh, refer to a decision that Paul apparently made um, uh, at Ephesus after hearing of this insult hurled at him by the wrongdoer uh, of 712. He says, so I made up my mind, I would not make another painful visit to you. Then he'll say in chapter seven, so even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor account of the injured party. Now that's Paul. Paul speaks of himself in the third person here. But rather that that before God you could see yourselves, see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. So Paul made a decision at car at, at Ephesus after this painful visit, after he was insulted by this person, after the insults that were hurled by this wrongdoer. Uh, he determined that he would not return, but that he would make a epistolary visit. That is, he would write a letter uh, that we just talked about. He makes the painful visit, and then he writes this, uh, this letter that's mentioned in chapter 2 um, and verse 4. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears and so forth, as we'll see. I say here, uh, since Paul speaks of sparing the Corinthians, verse 23, there is the implication that he might have punished or pained them. This would open up Paul to the charge that he was some kind of tyrannical overlord who sought to intimidate his converts in relation to matters of faith and conduct. This, in fact, may have been a charge made by the Corinthians. So in 124, Paul rejected any such idea. Now I'm talking here about Paul punishing them or painting them. Remember, the, apostle had, the apostles had tr- special powers. <laughs> uh, remember, Paul calls a man to go blind in the book of Acts. Uh, so Paul could, you know, could have brought judgment upon these Corinthians for their sinful activities and he threatens them as we'll see in second Corinthians. He threatens them actually at the end of this book. Hey, listen, I'm coming the third time. And, you know, I may have to bring out the rod. He says, you know, if you people don't lie, don't get yourself straight here. It's he's, he, he has some very strong words for them at the end of second Corinthians. Um, So he rejects that idea here in 124. I'm not trying to be some tyrannical overlord. What I'm doing is for your joy and for your good. He says, verse two, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? So here's the reason why Paul is not just interested in meeting out punishment that he could. Because if I grieve you, who's going to make me glad? Paul now gives the reason, or at least part of the reason, the four here, why he decided not to revisit Corinth personally. Paul believed that to inflict needless pain on the Corinthians at that time would have effectively dried up the only source of his own happiness. His his joy was intimately connected with their joy. Paul didn't get pleasure out of scolding these people to cause them pain was to experience pain himself. A pain that could, you know, only be relieved um, and then converted into gladness when they repented, as we'll see in chapter seven, he talks about, you know, this is the relationship between pastor and congregation, between leaders in the congregation. Uh, It may seem sometime like the pastor is sort of harsh and, you know, Anybody can sin. The pastor can sin, but uh, sometimes pastors have to be very strong, and because we're dealing with sinful behavior on the part of people, and it's not that you get any joy out of that. It, it's it's troubling. It's very troubling. It's church discipline is it's just, it's just a sad, and it's not a joyous thing to do because uh, the pastors leaders get their joy from the congregation from the people in the church who when we see spiritual growth s- spiritual fruit that that's a joyous thing that's why people are really in the ministry he says verse 3 i wrote as i did so that when i came i would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish. That's this severe letter we're talking about here, letter number three. I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So instead of, I say, of making a second painful visit to Corinth, which Paul felt would not have been best in light of the circumstances, Paul wrote the Corinthians a letter that has come to be known as the sorrowful or the severe letter. For I wrote you, Paul says. And so one purpose in writing it was to avoid being pained by them when he finally did pay another personal visit. He was trying to straighten things out in a letter rather than having to do it in person because that first visit was that visit, (laughs) that painful visit was very painful. It was upsetting to Paul that his converts who ought to have been a constant source of joy to him would prove and in fact had proved a cause of distress to their spiritual father. Yet in writing this severe letter, he had, you know, the cheerful assurance that whatever made him glad would give all of them pleasure too. For they were, you know, they were one in joy, as in sorrow, as he says in 3B. You know, I had confidence that you would share my joy. If, if you repent and, and I'm joyous, then you'll share that joy. A second reason for writing this sorrow, uh, sorrowful letter, the severe letter is given in the last part of verse 4. You know, although this letter uh, arose from, uh, say here, anguish and actually proved painful to the Corinthians, its aim was not vindictive. Rather, you know, it sought to convince the Corinthians of the intensity of Paul's love for them. I wrote you out of great distress but to let you know of the depth of my love for you. So that's another reason he wrote to let them know that he really loved these. I love you. I'm doing this because I love you. So the letter referred to here and ultimately when we see in chapter seven, verse eight is this one we just talked about this severe letter, this sorrowful letter, not extant. That is, it doesn't exist. God didn't preserve it. He didn't want that in the canon of scripture. Delivered by Titus after this painful visit. All right. Um, well, that's not going to. I guess I didn't uh, This is what I was referring to before. I guess I should read this. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see my letter hurt you. But only for a little while. Yet I am yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorrow, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads no leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So what we learn later on in chapter seven is that when he meets Titus, Titus comes back and says, uh the letter had a positive effect. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret that, because even though it made you unhappy for a while, it led to your repentance. And so they were sorrowful, but it was sorrow that led led to repentance, and that ultimately leads to salvation, that is sanctification in this case, spiritual growth, and so forth. So he doesn't regret sending this letter uh even though it was something very hard to do and very painful to do all right let's look at uh number two here paul is defending his conduct uh first he talks about the corinthians complaints uh and tries to answer those Mm -hmm. complaints And now he talks about another issue, and that's the offender. This person who uh, stood up to Paul and and made these accusations against Paul uh, and uh, attacked Paul on this visit he made, this painful visit. And um, the Corinthians did not really respond and defend Paul at that time. Now, what's happened is, uh, as you're reading this letter, Paul finds out when he meets Titus in Macedonia, and he's writing this letter, he finds out from Titus that they did respond to the severe letter. The Corinthians responded and, be, and were dealing with this man who, uh, who unbiblically and uh, sinfully opposed the, the apostle. And so Paul is advising here forgiveness for this offender. I say here, mention of the grief that the severe letter had caused leads Paul in verses 5 through 11 to think as well of the pain that the offending person had caused the church. He says in verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So apparently I say during Paul's painful visit, an insult of some description had been directed against him by someone at Corinth who was even perhaps Paul's leading opponent in the church. The nature of the offense or even the nature of the opposition is unclear. We don't really know. There are a number of possibilities. Uh, Some suggest that he may have objected to Paul's disciplinary methods outlined in 1 Corinthians 5 for the incestuous man. You Remember in the first epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul has to deal with a sin problem in the church. There is a man who is committing incest. Uh, he's uh, with his, you know, stepmother, and uh, Paul says you've got to do something about this. In fact, you've got to uh, remove this fellow from the church. Um, you've got to exercise church discipline. And so there may have been this fellow and maybe others who thought that was a little too harsh. And this is—I've seen this. You, you, I've seen, <laughs> this happens. I mean. Sometimes you have somebody in the church. So when do we engage in church discipline? We engage in it when we have someone, you know, basically engaged in open sin, well-known open sin. Somebody who's a member of the congregation who is just openly flouting the Bible, uh, committing some open sin uh, very flagrantly and won't repent. And uh, when that happens, we have to exercise discipline and remove the person. And 1 Corinthians 5 says the purpose ultimately of this is so the person will repent, be put out outside the church in the world, away from the fellowship of God's people. Hopefully they'll repent and return and they can be restored. Uh, but when that happens, some people may object and say, well, that's a little too harsh, you know. And so it could be that uh, you know, this guy objected to the way the incestuous man was treated. That's a possibility. Uh, it sounds like it's possible that the offender may have objected to uh, Paul's authority you know, as an apostle. He says later on, I already give you a warning when I was with you the second time. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. Now that was the uh, painful visit. And I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. So that may be a reference to questioning Paul's authority as an apostle to speak God's word to them. Whatever the case here, because there has been repentance, Paul now discounts the sorrow caused by this unfortunate episode. He says not to put it too severely. means not to labor the point. I'm not trying to exaggerate this, uh, you know. So he's, he's trying to, uh, uh, you know, suggest he wasn't hurt that, that badly about it, but I think he was. Um, probably on the basis, i say here, of Titus's report about the Corinthian reaction to the severe letter. Paul counsels the church to terminate the discipline they had inflicted on the individual in question. And so that's what Paul will say in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 7. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Remember, Paul leaves Ephesus goes to Macedonia, waiting for Titus to return with news about how did the Corinthians respond to the severe letter. And he's he's waiting for Titus. And not only by his coming, I was comforted, but not only by his coming, but also by the comforts you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter. may we read that. I, and I do not regret it, though I did regret it see my letter hurt you but i'm happy because not because you were made sorrow because you repented and so we we read that before so um paul uh counsels the church here to you know terminate the discipline that had been inflicted uh, on this particular man um uh, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. That's fine. Um, so Paul agrees with the majority view of the man's punishment as being sufficient. Now, possibly some didn't agree. Some may have said, "No, that's not good enough." Uh, there could have been. You know, we're reading. I'm just reading between the lines. Everybody's reading between the lines here. Obviously, Paul had opposition at Corinth, but he had people who supported him. There may there may have been a pro Pauline group. Remember, in 1 Corinthians, uh, he says, "Some say I am a Paul. I'm a Paulus." You know, uh, there could have been some in the church who thought Paul sided with Paul and thought, "No, that's not sufficient." You know, what what this guy's repentance? It, we don't really buy it. It's not sufficient, or the punishment. Is not sufficient. But Paul says, I agree with the majority, and it's fine. Verse 7, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to affirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you could stand the test and be obedient in everything. So the Corinthians are now instructed, I say here, by Paul to refrain from continuing or increasing the punishment. Instead, they should now rescue the man from discouraging grief and complete his reformation by forgiving him and encouraging him, including a public reaffirmation of their love for him as a brother in Christ. This would, this reaffirmation would assure this wrongdoer that God had in fact forgiven him. In verse nine, Paul says another reason for, for the severe letter was to test the church and determine by their response, their willingness to acknowledge his divinely given authority. And so by reproving the offender, the fact that the Corinthians had reproved and, and, uh, after hearing, after getting the severe letter, they had stood the test and approved, proved their obedience, you know, in all respects, as he says here, you know, um, in chapter seven, he'll say. So now by ending the punishment, this would be doing the same thing. They would be showing their obedience. Um, They would be acknowledging his authority as an apostle By following his instruction here and ending the punishment. Uh, And there's no inconsistency here, you know. Jesus himself said, you know, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Luke 17, 3. So, in either case, by first punishing the offender and now by forgiving him, they're proving their loyalty to the apostle. Verse 10, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So I'll say here, Paul here aligns himself with the Corinthian decision to forgive the person in question a decision he trusts they will make after receiving the present letter, 2 Corinthians. Uh, Thus, in effect, he says, your verdict of forgiveness is also my verdict. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. Now, verse 10 also, I say here, affords the clearest evidence that the offense was basically a personal offense against Paul. Uh, The reason I say this is because you might say, uh, okay, you keep talking about this severe letter and this visit. Could not this incident be the the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians 5? Because Paul had uh, wanted that man punished. He wanted him disciplined out of the church. Couldn't that be what's all being referred to? No, it couldn't be. Because uh, here there was need for Paul's personal forgiveness. In the case of the incestuous man, uh, Paul didn't need, forgive, didn't need to forgive anybody. The, man, the incestuous man didn't sin against Paul. And so Paul doesn't need to say, if you forgive, I'll suffocate. He didn't need to forgive the incestuous man. The incestuous man didn't sin against him. Sin against God and the church, but not against Paul. And so this is something against Paul personally. I forgive. I have to personally forgive this. But even though he says, you know, uh, that there is need, we recognize there's need for personal forgiveness, in deference to the, um, to the repentant offender's feelings, he discount, discounts any personal pain He himself experienced. I'm sure this was hurtful, but Paul minimizes it. You know, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ. Well, there was something to forgive, but Paul is minimizing that here. He deliberately, you know, understates the seriousness of the offense. Lest anyone imagine that he considered himself, you know, so virtuous in granting forgiveness so freely. I say here at the end of verse 10 and in verse 11, Paul gives the reason he granted forgiveness. It was for the welfare of the Corinthians. It was for your sake. That is, to avoid being outwitted by the master strategist Satan, who was bent on creating discord within the church at Corinth, either between the church at large. And a dissonant minority, or between the repentant wrongdoer and his fellow Christians. So these situations, you know, can be tricky when you've got this kind of sin in the church. It can be difficult. They can ultimately, Satan can use them to harm the church, to withhold forgiveness uh, when the man was repentant was to play into the hands of Satan, as Paul said. You, you've got this man who has repented, apparently genuine as far as you can tell. Then you have to forgive him. If you don't, you're playing into the hands of Satan. Satan had already gained one advantage when the man sinned. That was already a defeat there. We don't want to go further. There's a point at which punishment can become purely vindictive. And suffering a penalty can lead a person to despair, as Paul says in verse 7. I mean, Christian discipline, church discipline, Christian discipline includes punishment administered in love. But it's not simply retributive or punitive. It's also remedial. It's reformatory. That's, it. That's one of his central purposes. Um, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 about the man committing incest, hand this man over to Satan, which means to put him outside the church, for the destruction of the flesh. Now that, that's, that's destruction of the sinful nature or uh, destruction of that which is sinful so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what Paul is saying here, this man uh, is unrepentant. Put him outside the church. And hopefully, uh, in God's good providence, he'll come to his senses. And this sinful desires will be des- destroyed. He'll come to his senses. So ultimately, he'll be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, when a person uh, who is a professing believer commits you know, this gross s- sin like this man did, and he is put outside the church, like this man was. Um, you know, if, he, if this person never repents, one wonders were they ever saved or not. If they never repent, Christians will ultimately repent. Um, they will ultimately come back to Christ, maybe may at the very end of their lives. But... And so Paul says, ultimately, we're doing this. It has a purpose, a good purpose. That this man will come to his senses, repent of his sin, and that he can ultimately be saved. He says later on, 2 Corinthians 13, this is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing you down. So, what Paul is doing and what he's writing about is not for, uh, being uh, vindictive or punitive, that's not the idea. Uh, Paul is aiming here at repentance through uh, forgiveness, reconciliation. He He wants this man to be reinstated if he repents and then there is forgiveness by the church and ultimately reconciliation. So we're talking about Paul defending his conduct here. He's talked about their complaints. He's dealt with the issue of the offender who has repented, and now needs to be fully accepted and restored into the church. And now he adopt he, he speaks of this revised plan because he's accused, you know, of of being very fickle, he can't be trustworthy when he says I'm going to do this or that. And he has this revised plan. And so he says, verse 12, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. So he's speaking about how his travel plans changed you remember he he uh, he um, let me put that back again you see I've got him going from Ephesus here to Troas so Paul uh, has um, written the severe letter he's in Ephesus he sent it by Titus He's waiting to hear back from Titus, but he hasn't heard anything, so he goes to Troas. Now, I went to Troas, he says, looking for Titus, going to meet him on the way, finding out how the Corinthians responded to the severe letter. Now, we've already read, we've talked about in chapter 7, he'll he'll say he's very happy the way they've responded. He'll explain that in the narrative, and that's why he's He's suggesting forgiveness. They have, they have punished this man. They have dealt with him. He's repented, so now restore him. But he says, when I went to Troas and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind. I didn't find Titus there. So I said goodbye to him and went on to Macedonia. And that's where Paul is at now. He's at Macedonia. And in chapter 7, we read he meets Titus there, and he's writing 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, the letter that we are now studying and reading. I say this is the final section in Paul's explanation of his recent conduct. Titus, as we have said, had been sent to Corinth with a severe letter while Paul continued his ministry in and around Ephesus. Acts 19 says he stayed in the province of Ephesus a little longer. Uh, Through, um, I should say though, not through. Though verse 12 only gives us Paul's intent to to evangelize in Troas. He says, uh, I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ found the Lord had opened a door, but I didn't have any peace of mind, so I left and went on to Macedonia. So I say here, uh, though Paul gives us his intent to evangelize, the open door probably, and I don't know for sure, suggests at least some actual, at least initial preaching of the gospel. Um. I say that because we know, it's hard to know. It's really tough to know. Because uh, when Paul visits Troas some months later, a church had been established there. So if you're familiar with the book of Acts, uh, we're talking here about uh, right now, Paul going to Macedonia. uh, And uh, then he goes on to Corinth. Acts chapter 20, and uh, he plans to, at Corinth, he plans to uh, to go to Jerusalem, but uh, there's a plot to kill him, so he traces, retraces his steps back through Macedonia and stops at Troas, you remember, and that's where he preaches all night, you remember, he, he's delivering, talking to them all night long, that fellow falls out the window, you remember, So there is a church at Troas now. So we don't know when that was established. We know Paul was in Troas earlier in Acts 16 because he goes to Troas and gets the Macedonian call in Troas, but, uh, you know, it doesn't say he he, he preached the gospel there, established the church here. It says he preached the gospel. So at least some, it may have been here, but whatever the case, uh, Paul's evangelism here was curtailed by the non-arrival of Titus. Uh, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, you know, and not only his coming. So Paul curtails his evangelism uh, here. um, And uh, his concern for the safety of Titus. God who comforts us down comforts us by the coming of Titus. So Paul is intro as uh, he's maybe starts some initial evangelization. We don't know exactly, but he's restless. He's concerned. What's happened to Titus? How have have the Corinthians responded positively? So he leaves and goes on to Macedonia. And so he was concerned about maybe the travel safety of Titus, particularly carrying the completed. Corinthian collection, maybe. Uh, part of this we haven't talked about, we'll get to later, is Paul was collecting an offering and uh, for the poor saints in Jerusalem, Judea, and he has a lot of discussion with the Corinthians about that. We'll talk quite a bit about that when we get to chapters 8 and 9. I say at this point in the text, we begin what is sometimes called the great digression. Remember, I said one of the things about 2 Corinthians is these, uh, I guess, and I call them rabbit trails. They're digressions that Paul gets on. Um, And obviously, this is under the inspiration of God, but it still uh, can be a little difficult to follow because Paul starts talking about one subject. He talks about something, and that leads him to digress. And then he talks about this, and that leads him to digress. (laughs) And we've got a tremendous digression here between chapter two and chapter seven, particularly chapter six. Uh, I say here, um, Paul interrupts his description of his search for Titus, which he does not resume until seven five. So remember he says here, I went to Troas to preach the gospel and uh, I didn't find any open door so I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia. Now, the truth is that uh, you could jump <laughs> from chapter two, verse twelve, right to seven five, and not miss a beat. I, ha- I went to uh, I went to Troas. Didn't find, uh, the Lord opened the door? I couldn't didn't find Titus. I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. Seven five. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God who comforts us, comforts the downcast, comforts us by the coming of Titus. So Paul starts this narrative here, his travel narrative in chapter 2, verse 12, but he interrupts the travel narrative until he gets to chapter 7, verse 5, and he picks up that narrative again. What happened to him? He went went to Macedonia. He still hadn't heard from Titus. He's you know, conflicts, fears, but Titus comes and comforted us by the coming of Titus. So we're going to enter into now, even though we are talking about this travel narrative, we're going to enter into this digression. Uh, Paul suddenly shifts, I say here, from anxiety. I still had no peace of mind in verse 13. I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. He shifts shifts from anxiety to thanksgiving, but thanks be to God. That's what we see in verse 14, but thanks be to God. Um, Some commentators suggest that this digression is brought about by Paul's remembering his happy reunion with Titus in Macedonia, who brought encouraging news from Corinth that relieved Paul's distress. So that might be what happens because what happened, if we just follow the narrative, is Paul goes to, to Macedonia. He's still upset. He hadn't found Titus. But then God, then Titus comes and it's just wonderful. You know, he's comforted by Titus and the good news. So as Paul is thinking about this in 213, you know, I, I couldn't find Titus. I went on to Macedonia. He remembers how joyous and happy he was how rejoicing when titus shows up and gives him this great news he says in chapter 2 verse 14 but thanks be to god who always leads us as captives to Christ's triumphal procession and so forth so that may be what's going on as i say uh, in the fav- in, in the favorable corinthian reaction to the severe letter reported by titus Paul saw God's vindication of his apostleship and a triumph of God's grace in the hearts of the Corinthians. Paul is then reminded afresh that God's power is able to overcome any and all human weakness. And so he, he, uh, begins to rejoice about that. And so we have this digression that we'll look at next week. Uh, Beginning in chapter two, verse fourteen, where Paul, uh, thinking about this coming of Titus and the joy that brought, he starts talking about his own ministry, the character of his ministry. Um, and uh, that's that's sort of a defense, uh, still defending his ministry against criticism. It's part of his defense be, by talking about the character but he's interrupting that tr- that narrative that, that we see there. He doesn't pick it up to chapter 7, so we have this interruption of the narrative, but it's all part of Paul's defense against criticism by explaining his ministry and the character of his ministry. And he says his ministry was a sim- sincere, it was sincere, proclamation of the knowledge of Christ. And so we'll look at that uh, beginning next time, but... It's eight Oh three. So we will stop here. Thank you. Let me see if I can uh, stop this sharing. And, uh,